it doesn't work that way. It's especially the mind. The mind space is ubiquitous. It's a disaster at times in a very beautiful way, in a very beautiful way. And so it's really, you know, for us, mindfulness is approach. It's, it is a behavioral technique. It's also a skill. We look at it with all those, all those lenses, but it's really an approach. It's really an approach for us to be as present as we can, especially right now. I mean, we're in the fight of our life. Everybody, thank you very much for tuning into my Run Your Life podcast series. And as always, I want to thank you for your time and energy and for tuning into any episode that you can. The whole idea behind my podcast series is to interview people from the world of education and beyond who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life through their chosen field, whatever that field may be. And what I really love about having these conversations on my podcast is that every guest that I have on the show is very unique, and they all do different types of work. I've had professional athletes on the show, Olympians, best-selling authors, artists, CEOs, educational researchers, lots of different types of people, but at the end of the day, it really is about teaching and learning. And that's what inspires me to interview these guests to better understand what it is that they've learned about themselves, what it is they've learned about their craft, and the guiding principles that have allowed them to have the success that they have in their chosen field. And without question, much of their success comes from years of hard work. But I would also like to add that critical self-reflection is very much a part of their journey as well and their willingness to face their shortcomings, to face their failures, and to learn from them and to accept that these failures and shortcomings are actually a part of the process of getting better every single day at what it is they do. And in today's podcast, I have Professor Kevin Marks on the show. He is a tenured professor in psychology and health science from Solano College in California. Now, I've never met Kevin in person, but we've been connected online through a virtual learning community called the Finding Mastery Tribe, which brings people together from around the world who are very interested in human psychology and the principles behind what it takes to bring out peak performance in sport and many other areas of life. Um, this conversation really digs deeply into the human mind and is very much based on Kevin's life work over the past 20 years in the field of psychology and health science. And you can hear in this episode that Kevin brings with him a deep sense of passion and love for better understanding the human mind and the basic building blocks necessary to help each person thrive and flourish in their own unique ways based on the individual or team sport 
that they play. And in this episode, we also dive into uh, a discussion about mindfulness, goal setting, breath work, and visualization, and how these things can have a very positive impact on performance and staying on track with what matters most. So it's a really good discussion. Uh, The beginning actually is a little bit, we had some tech difficulties, so it's a little bit glitchy in the first couple minutes, but just stick with it because after that, the sound quality is just fine. Uh, There's a lot of good stuff in this conversation. Um, I'm super happy to have connected with Kevin, and we talked about doing a part two at some point in the future, but for today's episode, those are the big themes that we dove into. So... With that, let's jump right into this discussion with Professor Kevin Marks. Okay, Kevin, it's uh, great to have you on the podcast and to give the listeners some context. You and I have never met face-to-face, but we belong to a, a group online, which is called the Finding Mastery Tribe, which brings people together who are passionate about psychology and peak performance, principles of sports psychology, social and emotional wellness, physical well-being, all of these amazing themes. So you and I met taking a course online and have communicated over the, the years, the past few years. But I really want to thank you for your time today. And uh, I'm really happy that we finally managed to, to work out a time that we could record this podcast. Back at you. Yeah, it seems like we have been really trying to pin this down for a while, as as I'm sure you have with with others. And I again, we've we've really connected virtually, and so we've studied each other or really looked into each other from afar. And I really respect your work, and I really enjoy the passion which you you present, you know, day in and day out with such an important area and discipline. So I'm fired up to have a good conversation with you. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show, because one of my passions, obviously, with our common link to peak performance and finding mastery is this idea of, um, you know, social and emotional wellness. And, and that's uh, a lot of the work that you do is, is related to those themes. So just before we begin, um, I've said a little bit about you in the intro, but just talk about where you're presently at, like where, where you work and what your job title is. Sure. I'm currently in California at Solano College, which is a California community college. And I teach, I, I teach in the psychology department and in the kinesiology department. I have a unique job description, I guess you would call it. And it's a ton of fun. So I split my time in psychology general and clinical psychology. And then also in kinesiology with teaching lecture courses such as exercise prescription biomechanics which is a fit for life class and then sports psychology and then the third hub is working with athletes and so i work with a variety of teams on campus here and i also work with individual athletes and then if we're putting just a little bit of an asterisk in there i also work in a california state prison at level three and we work with psychoeducation so i teach psych one even though we've gone away from that this semester that is something that I do as well. So do you do that online? We, it was face to face. And then uh, I did not teach this last semester, but it went fully remote. 
And so I'll probably be out there in the next couple semesters. Since this happened, they really, they pulled back on some of the delivery modes because in the, in the state prison, it's a unique animal in terms of how we go about teaching using technology. And so there's a lot of things that have shifted and the, the pandemic has really created a problem in that space, a challenge, I would say. So, Kevin, that sounds like amazing work that you're doing. And, and I had recently on my podcast Fritzi Horstman from the Compassion Prison Project. And she talks about how rewarding her work is. And uh, there's an amazing video on YouTube of the work that she's doing going into prisons and really working with prisoners to help them understand that so many of them have experienced trauma and that they're not defined by being in prison, that they're actually miraculous people. Uh, and she's there to just help them realize that and to give them the skills they need to integrate back into society because they all want to do well, you know? So she, her, her project is amazing. But before we get into the rest of the podcast, can you just talk about what the work, um, you know, working with um, inside prisons and, doing the work that you're doing, what that means to you and what it kind of brings you? I thought it was really interesting. It's been on my mind for some time. And I had a colleague and a dean reach out to me about a year ago or so to ask me if I would be interested in doing that. And at the time, we had the, the schedule was really, really fluid and there was many moving parts. And so I couldn't do it. But there came a point in time where I wanted to jump into that arena because I am really curious about human performance from, from A to Z, whether it's from Yale to jail. And, and I mean that in that working with athletes and individuals that are really fine tuned and that are, that are driven and that have all their emotional needs met and they have a particular background that has lent themselves to the development and the path that they're on. There's others that don't have that. And so I wanted to really see the full spectrum of human performance and just understanding a little bit in terms of the training that I went through to be able to do that. It's a different world. It really is. It's almost a microcosm of, of our society. It's they're, they're in their own little niche in a prison and they have a, their own little uh, really city in there and everybody's doing things to work together. I was interested in that. And so my curiosity drove me towards that just as the 0.001% or the tip of the spear individuals that, that play sports, you know, that's not that serious, but still with something that has always appealed to me because it's such a challenge. It's very similarly is the, the prison life. And how is it that these individuals have, have landed there? You know, what is it about these individuals that have, have put them in that situation or situations in general that have landed them in a prison? So overall, it was curiosity that led me to that. And really, my, my experience with the educational system in the prison comes in the form of psychology. And so it was teaching a psych one course to those to those inmates. And so I had 36 students inmates that quite interestingly my first introduction when I got there the coordinator greeted me outside the gate took me about 20 minutes to get in there that's that's pretty wild the whole story on on how we go about doing that but greeted me and gave me a rundown and he says okay so you're at level three 36 students every one of which have either one committed a murder or two have been involved in a murder 
and they're curious. So they're going to listen to you and you're going to be just fine. <laughs> when he told me that I take a big, I took a big gulp and <laughs> worked on a little breathing right there. And I pretty much didn't hear what he said after that. Cause I was like, Ooh, the, this is interesting, right? This is, it's on right now. And so this is going to be, I knew right there, this is going to be a really unique opportunity for me. And so I made my way up there and we haven't looked back. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. And it's been really, for me, almost like a research project in human performance. And the days that I went out there, this was last semester, the semester before last semester, to give you some context, I'm in a classroom working with an athlete, a one-on-one mental skills session. We're in there for about 50 minutes. Tremendous person, 3.6 GPA. She's on her way to a division one scholarship. Really good, really good athlete. We had an unbelievable conversation, did some work. And then I'm on highway 80 going to the California, California state prison, 15 minutes down the road. So in a matter in transition, 15 minutes, I'm in this environment And then I'm in another environment with some of the most hardened individuals in the state of California. And I couldn't have it any better than that because for me, it was really kind of a working laboratory for me to sort out what is this thing that we call human potential and how is it that we develop on our path, on our trajectory? So it's been interesting for me, been a lot of fun. Oh, that's amazing. And I, I like how you describe that working with, you know, in one setting and then immediately moving to a different setting that requires different skills, but the skills are obviously transferable. You know, it's just a different context for teaching and learning. Um, so what, just talk about that transition and you're driving down the, the freeway to do your work and how is it that you're able to mentally shift gears to prepare for that next teaching and learning experience? So what is it that you say to yourself and what is it that you're looking forward to and and just to, to frame up that experience? That's a thoughtful question. And that is something that I thought about and think about a lot. It's those little transitions. And these are things we work with, with our athletes. I mean, most mistakes are made in transitions. And so if we're in one place and we go to another, are we really there? Are we really there? Now we know we're there physically, but are we where our feet are at? And so a year you're on it in that I really use that time on the freeway to take mental attendance. And I know this is a buzzword, but we, we dive deep and, and this is something that I've really learned about and been about and tried to sharpen that edge which is mindfulness for quite some time, all the way back since 1999, when I got introduced to it, mindfulness training, which was not on a mat. It was in more of a rugged kind of environment of football. Mm -hmm. And so I would use that time to take mental attendance and I would go through breathing. In fact, I, I have, I have particular systems that I work from. And just to be brief here, for example, as I put on, I put on my stopwatch and every five minutes as I'm in transition, I'm breathing diaphragmatically. So it's more of a behavioral technique. I'm not driving and, you know, open monitoring, you know, type of meditation, but I'm just really getting connected with what I'm doing, my breath, and then actually driving and really just trying to be as present as I can. And then as I get close, just like with I, what I do with many different moments or moments of test that, that I call them, not necessarily sensationalized big moments, but as I get a little closer to those, I get more connected to them. And so I go in and I have particular routines that I go with and I get really clear about my self-talk and I have, you know, certain things I do, but I really try to discipline my mind 
on what I'm doing. And I know that sounds, you know, that might either sound esoteric or cliche either way for me, I really try to get my mind right. And I try to get my mind where I'm at. And that's my main aim is to be as present as I can. And in the prison, you, I was really just the environment. I think when we're in risky environments or anything that presents a risk, we're naturally going to be present. I think for the most part, when our heart starts to thump a little bit, just the biological mechanisms that we have, they call for us to be present. However, I do think that within that space, there's also this little second piece, that judgment. And that is a big part I always try to work on. So not only am I just trying to be present, but I'm really trying to see things for what they are and trying to get ahead of that moment. So I'm not judging things as good or bad or hostile, you know, compared to is, is it a threat or is it a challenge? So I'm really trying to get my mind in a space that allows me to be me and, at the core of that is, is an educator. I need to be able to put my best foot forward and give them what I have. And so I do have routines that, that allow me to do that. And, and I'm constantly tweaking and working on things and, and I definitely don't have it all figured out just yet. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. And so I'm just trying to figure it out. And it's to me, those environments are fun for me. I really enjoy, I enjoy challenges, whether it's a physical challenge or an emotional challenge mentally those are things that I'm really drawn to. Oh, that's great. That sounds uh, very interesting in the sense that what you're talking about is uh, modifying and tweaking and um, really experimenting. And there's that creative side of this is what mindfulness is. And it's not just a blanket mindfulness approach with everybody saying this is how you have to do it. Here's the kind of the mindfulness framework. It's taking those ideas and then tweaking them and modifying them and creating your own version of them, like you say, and keeping an, an open and curious mind, as John Kabat-Zinn says, a beginner's mindset to everything that we do. And that's what you're describing. So you're taking these mindfulness strategies and you're, you're applying them in a way that is, is unique to who you are and then assessing and reflecting on whether or not they're working and if they're not another little tweak, another little adjustment, but that's the beauty of mindfulness is that there's no one definition of what it is or how it works. It's very individualized. And I think it's just drawing on the mindfulness principles and then applying them in a way that works for you. So does that sound like something that that resonates with you? 100%. And yeah, just how you're talking about that, I get really engaged because the work that I do with athletes is we come back to that and it's self-discovery. It's not prescriptive. We, we work from a framework and we present evidence-based material and we want them to make a decision. What's going to work for you? We spend a lot of time on attribution theory and, and how are you describing your successes and how are you, be, how are you able to figure out how things went well or, or when they didn't go well. And so it is an individualized approach. And I've been fascinated with the mind and the body studying psychology, whether it's clinical or whether it's a humanistic perspective to studying biomechanics and exercise physiology. To me, it fascinates me. They're both complex. The mind is extremely complex and there is no one size fits all. There really isn't. We know we hear that all the time. Unfortunately, 
many times we hear delivery modes, whether it's education or it's sport performance, any kind of performance domain. Sometimes, more times than not, they're prescriptive. It's one through four. It's steps six through whatever. And it doesn't work that way. It's especially the mind. The mind space is ubiquitous. It's a disaster at times in a very beautiful way, in a very beautiful way. And so it's really, you know, for us, mindfulness is approach. It's, it is a behavioral technique. It's also a skill. We look at it with all those, all those lenses, but it's really an approach. It's really an approach for us to be as present as we can, especially right now. I mean, we're in the fight of our life. We really are right now. And so it's something that is dear to me and, and the athletes that, that I work with. And it's a ton of fun to get better at it. Yeah. And these things, you know, as you say, the earlier in education that we can bring these concepts and ideas and principles to young people, um, I think we prepare them with the tools to really succeed in their own ways. And a lot of schools will talk the game. So they will say that they, you know, social and emotional learning is at the forefront and center of everything that they do. But then suddenly they, they let data get in the way. Math testing, literacy testing, and mm-hmm. all of this pressure on teachers with testing and teach to the test and all of this nonsense that we know doesn't work. Um, it just disengages. But the, the real, uh, the, the best teachers in the best schools are the ones that, yes, data is important, but social and emotional learning and providing uh, students with the skills needed mentally, emotionally, socially to succeed in this ever-changing world is uh, a priority. So I guess I want to like, rewind just a little bit to early days for you you know we jumped into like this great thread of conversation but early days for you just to set a little context um what was early life like for you and um what was the focus or what key experiences kind of shaped who you were love that question as well and the first thing that comes to mind is play i have right now two older brothers and when I was growing up, we were we were ripping and running everywhere. We played all the time, and we were in a really cool environment or neighborhood. We ended up moving. We were in two different neighborhoods, both of which were just packed with kids. And so we had a lot of unstructured play. And again, how I'm explaining this now is I experienced it as a young child, but I didn't really know how to wrap language around really what was going on. And so how I'm explaining it now is how I have it. Now I've come to understand what was really going California? on. California, Modesto, California in the Valley. And so we were playing all the time. Physically, we were running, jumping, scratching, clawing. And again, my older brothers, they were both different individuals. And currently my, my older, my, the oldest brother is nine years older. And he was a phenomenal athlete, played all sports in high school, was a all region division two baseball player, you know, all everything at the junior college level, then went to the next level division two did really, really well. And I was at that formative in that formative space where I looked at him and I thought, you know, I like that too, because I already played so many different things. And I was just, I really loved sports and, and what it provided. And I was always watching him. And then my middle brother, the same thing is a little bit different. He's more of the protective brother. And he was always watching out for me. And we played together with friends and, did all kinds of things. So 
my childhood was a ton of fun and there was a lot of, there was pain involved emotionally. There was, there was a ton of bliss and happiness. There was all kinds of things wrapped around us always doing a bunch of stuff and playing with a lot of friends. And as we got a little older, it became more structured. We got to junior high and we got to high school. I loved it. Some people might not have, but for whatever reason, I think the sports kept me really connected. I was trying to sort out who I was at that time. And, and interestingly, from a young age, I was with, lived with my mother and my parents had a divorce from a young age and my mother, and she's passed away. And she is to, to, to this day is the most driven person, uh, ambitious person I've ever seen in my life. And so she, we were, we've been in some interesting situations to where she opened up her own business and she did very, very well. And so I've been in situations where we, we were financially secure and then some, we had a lot of great things going on and then we lost it all. And we got into high school. I was in high school at the time and, and she lost it all. Just had some bad luck and had a bad business partner that did some bad things. And, and we had, we had a rough go. We didn't have a lot of resources at a time where I was trying to sort out who I was. And as we know, on good developmental psychology, those are, that's really important. You know, we're trying to do and use certain things as a vehicle or to jump on these things as a vehicle to figure out who we are. And I felt now knowing what I went through is sports was that vehicle that I jumped on and I could be me. And it provided a sense of stability for me to do what I wanted to do. And so playing all kinds of sports in high school and then in college really allowed me to express who I, who I was at the time and currently uh, built into who I am right now. But it was, it was a lot of fun. We, we played a lot. We, we did all kinds of, of things, but I think sport and play was something that was at the center of my childhood. That's awesome. And a lot of the work that I'm doing right now in physical education, I'm working with a team of researchers in Canada and Ireland um, who have this very unique, unique approach in the sense that it's not so much a model, it's more of a framework that guides teaching and learning. So what they did was they looked at, it's called the Meaningful PE Framework, and you and I have spoken behind the scenes about this in the, in the past, but to give the listeners some context, um, it's looking at the traditional models of physical education um, and the way it's delivered and looking at all these different models and then kind of extracting the five most common features. It ends up being the five most common features, um, which are uh, motor competence, challenge, personal relevance, social interaction, and joy and delight. So what you're describing, so the idea is that in order for young people to find meaning through movement and physical activity and sport, whatever it is, um, those features are present. It has to be personally relevant. They're connected with others, that type of thing. So when you describe your early days, all of those five features, I'm listening and I'm like, yeah, motor competence took care of itself because you guys were just throwing the football around and, and you know, catching and doing all of these things where you're intrinsically motivated to just do the sport, therefore motor competence takes care of itself. Personal relevance, obviously, is so important, right? And a very much a part of what you experience, social interaction, connecting with others. You said there is a big neighborhood of kids doing, you know, hanging out. 
um, that idea of challenge. Challenge is the big one and, and challenge is, you know, finding that just right entry point to skill development. So for me growing up as a quarterback, you know, well, I taught myself how to throw, you know, it became like, could, can I throw over the back bushes, you know, and then soon I can throw, which is, and I, then I take the yardstick out and measure back five yards. Right. And then, and then try to punt over the bushes and then try to create a spiral on my punt that turned over, you know, and then what do I have to do with my foot? So an, an inquiring mindset, you know, curious mindset, um, but that's the challenge piece, right? So that's what I'm fascinated by. So what you're describing led to the path that you're on. Those five features led to the path that you're on. And then you ended up playing college football. I did as well. So we have that common connection. So, so talk about your experience, uh, where you played football and, and the position and kind of what you learned from that experience. Yes, I have learned so many things and continue based on the participation in sports and working with athletes back when I played. So I played my freshman and sophomore year in college at Modesto junior college in the Valley. And then my junior year, I went up to Washington and played in Spokane at Whitworth university and had a, a, you know, a ton of fun. I was, I was fortunate enough to get an academic scholarship. It's a very small college. It's a division three uh, college relative regarding the athletes. And so I was able to get some really good academic scholarship money. And then I ended up transferring my senior year for a variety of reasons. It was really, really expensive. The academic scholarship would only take me so far because it wasn't a full scholarship. So I ended up transferring over to MSU, Minot State University, a division two school in Minot, North Dakota, and played my senior year there and had a ton of fun. And I learned so much. In fact, this could be a whole nother podcast right here because I am so fortunate right now in my college days, whether it's athletics or academics to have phenomenal mentors and leaders right out of the gate. My freshman year in college, a man by the name of Steve DePrado, who is a legend in the Valley. Most people, maybe our listeners don't have any clue who that is, but he is a legend out out here and I was introduced really to mindfulness training and it wasn't called that back then it was it was do it one at a time use your breath to control yourself and focus one at a time so my introduction to mindfulness was in 1999 in the summer on the football field running 240 they're called 240s so we would have to run down to the back of the end zone and back full pads, 105 degree heat. Everybody knows the story, right? You know, all those things. Yeah. We called them three sixties, Kevin, because we would have to do it around the outside of the field. So it was a three sixty. man. Yeah. So, you know, exactly. And that was my introduction. And what does that mean? Well, what it was, was, is our coach says, look, this is going to, this is going to get you now. This is going to be really hard and I want you to get ready for it the person that's going to finish this. And we had time we had to we had to perform. So it wasn't just about grittiness. We had to make our marks. So we had to not, we had to get down and back at a certain time and we only had 30 seconds recovery. So it was brutal. And he says, the individuals that are going to make it are, they're going to stay present. They're going to do, they're going to execute it one at a time. And this is going to sound simple. It's not, you can develop it though. You can train it. I remember him talking about the individuals who will not finish it. They're going to tap out. They're going to get ahead of themselves mentally. They're going to think to themselves, 
how am I going to do this? How in the world am I going to do this 45 minutes of madness? And he was right. In fact, 20 something years later, when I'm competing in a triathlon, one of the toughest things I've ever done in my life, I worked very hard to train my mind to stay in things and not to get ahead of things or behind time. And it really helped me out. And so from the get go, I was, I was presented with that. Can you imagine that as an 18 year old kid? How cool is that? And then my first class is anthropology. 20 minutes later, I go to a class called peak performance through mental training, which was taught by the head football coach. And he's an academic person too. I think he was at UC Davis and then Sac State and then got the job at the college that I was at. So we were surrounded with really good teachers and coaches. And we learned about some of the research in the class. And then we, we applied it during our, the playing days. And so I played the next year there, went up to Washington and it was unbelievable. In fact, that was the point where I really solidified some of the language that I use to this day when it comes to how I operate, my, my personal philosophy. And I was introduced to this thing called philosophy my freshman year by the same coach I was just talking about. He was really big on philosophy. And then I got to Washington my junior year in college, and I had another unbelievable coach, my defensive coordinator, Chris Casey, who's in Oregon right now, who really was able for me, I knew instinctively what I was all about, but that's another individual that helped me understand how to figure out how to articulate it and how to get it down on paper. And, and so that was a tremendous experience. And then I go to Minot State University, and here we go again. I had some other tremendous competitors and mentors. They had coach Mike Sievertson, who was at North Dakota State University and some other colleges that were really big in the Midwest and learned so much from him. And so I, I don't even know really how to pin down what I've learned because it's been so much. I am extremely fortunate enough to have been around some tremendous coaches. And I didn't even have a chance to mention some of the professors that I had. Tremendous history professors, philosophy professors, individuals that I remember to this day, some of the lectures. And, and so I have been blessed. I, I talk to many people. And I ask them, you know, who's, who's your guy? You know, who's your mentor? Who's the professor that, that got you, that gets you? Who's your coach that you really, you go to? And unfortunately, there's some, there's some that say, oh, I have this and that and that. But many, they might have one, maybe. And a lot of times it's in elementary school. That, is, that wasn't the case with me. I was flooded with tremendous individuals. So I'm, to this day, 100% fortunate. Yeah, what, what comes alive as I hear you talk about that is, again, I want to return back to this beginner's mindset idea and openness to new experiences and open openness to learning. And it sounds like from a young age, you had that. Because when I hear your story, I, I know playing at one university for five seasons was friggin' hard. And just, you know, being mentally prepared on the same team for five years five seasons day in and day out working out with these these guys is uh, very difficult mentally because you're even though you're on one team every year is a different season you, you know I was a backup quarterback I started uh, as a punter throughout university but I really fought hard to be starting quarterback so every season presented uh, a a new chance for me to kind of establish myself as the best quarterback on the team. What you're talking about is shifting universities, you know, going into completely new communities, 
right? So you start at one university, you go to another university, you end up at another university. So that, to me, to be able to thrive in those unknown environments, to me, um, is related to, just as I hear your story, your openness to learning and being receptive to these new experiences. Because otherwise, you'd be roasted from the start. You go to a new school and you're roasted and it's like fighting from the bottom again. So even though you might have had a lot of athletic ability that allowed you to establish yourself, to me, there's more going on there. So talk about what it was like for you to bridge the gap between those different university experiences moving into new communities and the skills that were present within yourself to really tackle that new challenge with uh, those new challenges with openness and curiosity. I really, I, I like that link and I like the, the connection that you made to those transitions because I've never really thought about that. And I would, I would likely attribute that to the, those early days and how, you know, tremendous just joy from playing and trying to figure things out. And there wasn't people around. And I talked to my wife about this because my daughter, my awesome daughter, I want to, you know, you can't really give that to them. You can't give them that curiosity we can cultivate the environment for sure i want her to wake up right now i i love waking up it's so much fun and i've always been like that trying to figure new things out and 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 it's just something that i would love to give to my daughter and my wife and i have these discussions and there was not a lot of adults around when i was little we played it was unstructured play and then we competed too as we got older it was a natural progression to where the formality started to rear its head at the right time. We started to have referees and people at the right time. But by the time we got there, we've already been through so many experiences on our own where we had to really sort out a lot of things and we had to figure things out sometimes through, you know, through verbal persuasion, sometimes, sometimes through fights, you know? And so there's a lot of stuff going on and there wasn't a lot of parents around at the time in a good way, we were able to structure that. And so I would say that for whatever reason, I do remember in my college days, you and I, we have talked about Albert Bandura's work on self-efficacy for whatever reason I I did have, I remember back then I had high self-efficacy. I, I just had a thought and I had a thought that I will figure this out. I got this for whatever reason. And Moving all the way from, from where I was at to Washington, I just had a thought that this is going to be fun. This is going to be an adventure, and I will figure it out. And the same thing, and I just have this vivid memory. I was in the library at, uh, in Washington at Whitworth University, and we're doing, working on some papers. And I knew, okay, I think I need to make a move here. And, and I, for whatever, I don't, again, for whatever reason, I just had this thought that I will figure it out. I had that, that efficacy maybe built from making so many dang mistakes uh, as a, as a child and, and as a young adult that that was, that was built up. And in the meantime, I had people with really good intentions, close people and people that, that were friends. So I had family members saying, first of all, you're going to go to Washington. Why don't we stay, stay in California? Why, why go here? Why do this? Maybe I had one person who I'm actually close with, say that might not be a good move you know and I I listened I took it in but I just for whatever reason I knew this was going to be a good fit if not I was going to make it a good fit 
and things didn't work out there, but I just had some kind of thought that I will figure it out. And I remember when I was transferring the Washington coach at the time, he takes me out to lunch, never forget this. And he says, look, he takes me to this, this Mexican restaurant and really, really awesome approach. He's really, he cares. He's trying to talk me into staying in Washington. Appreciate it so much. He pulls out this pitcher of ice water and he says, I want you to put your hand in this right now. <laughs> so, really? Okay. So I put my hand in the ice water and he says, where you're going, you're putting your whole body in that for hours. You're going to North Dakota and that is going to be, do you, have you your, thought about your this? Tactics. Yeah. Have you thought about this? And then he circles back and says, Kevin, he says, look, I am most concerned with you and your academics. Statistically, I remember him saying this and I get the goosebumps right now to this day. Statistically, you will not graduate if you make this transition. And, and I totally get where he's coming from because he is right. You know, when people are bouncing around from one place to another, that is a problem. However, when he said that, Again, I had this thought, I got this. No, I, I know who I am. I knew that I was going to graduate and I was going to go on to do things that I wanted to do. And I did do that. So some years later, I came back and I, I, when I got done, I graduated. I wrote him a letter and he got the letter. And then he circled back. I ended up going into coaching at the time he comes down to Modesto to recruit some of our players and he brings a letter because he knew I was coaching there. We had a really good discussion about that situation. And so what happened was it had nothing to do with me proving anybody wrong, myself included. I just, I just knew, I knew that I could get things done. I was resourceful and I would work hard and I would, I guess there is some openness to that. I was open to listening to people to learn as much as I could to make those transitions. So that's, that's part of it. But uh, you, yeah, we talked about this earlier on. It's, that is a macro transition. We have micro and macro transitions. We make many transitions transitions throughout the day. That is a big transition and I think that early childhood, some of those experiences did put me in a good position to work and sort out some of those things. And, you know, Michael Gervais often talks about this and optimism is the belief that something uh, good will happen or that, that things will work out. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy, but it's, it's a belief that I have the internal resources to figure this out. And that's exactly that sounds like what you had, which is very similar to, I think, my story and what I had and growing up in a dysfunctional family environment, you know, with addiction and mental illness and then finding football and and really always believing that I there was something I couldn't identify it or late put a label on it. But I knew that there was something within myself that was different than many of my family members. And although that was um, magnified through sport, it was still, regardless of sport, I, I feel that there was something in there within me, you know, that allowed me to be open to these new experiences. And, and you know, when I graduated from university, I'm so thankful to have played football and had all of these wonderful experiences. And I went back and coached my high school football team. I never imagined in a million years that I would ever leave my hometown because that's 
I established myself here. Everything was here for me. My network was here. And then suddenly I found myself, my wife, who was my girlfriend back then, was going to Japan for six months. And I was like, okay, well, I'll go see you. And then I found myself at Metro Airport in Detroit on an airplane saying goodbye to my life in, in Windsor. And I knew that when I got on that plane, that I was headed for something completely unknown. And then that turned into living 10 years in Hiroshima, Japan. And my world changing and then leaving my hometown to experience the world. And since then we've moved to, you know, Azerbaijan and Cambodia and China. And we're now, I mean, I'm in Saudi Arabia right now recording with you. So there is that element yeah, of this openness to experience, you know, and even though somebody might not feel that they're, that that define or that describes who they are, really people without knowing it are open to new experiences when they put themselves in the position. So I guess that's a nice segue into the current work that you're doing because all of your experiences define your personal narrative and the trajectory that you're on. So um, talk about your current role and all of those skills that you developed within yourself that are very personal yet apply professionally to every move you make in teaching and learning. So, yeah, just, just talk about anything you want about the skills you've developed personally that apply professionally in the work that you currently do. Yes, I think that, and, and maybe this is a reason why I'm so interested in human performance in many, from A to Z, as we talked about earlier, is that I've worked really hard to develop skills and I want to be as clear as I can is that it's, there's no end point, especially for how I'm going about it is that I'm trying to figure out ways to get better. And that ties into who I am. My philosophy is, is for me, it's all about attitude and I am relentlessly on the hunt to try to get better with things. And so I have tried very hard to be as present as I can and that does not mean for me to roll out a yoga mat. And, and I don't want to take anything away from anybody that does, because I put in many hours on that yoga mat. What I'm really talking about is, is daily mindfulness, being really present, as present as I can, and then being aware when I get off track. And so some of the skills I've developed that have certainly helped me in different environments that I'm in right now, such as education or working as a psychological skills consultant with athletic teams, or I'm in hour 15 of an Ironman race, mindfulness and being where my feet are at mentally, taking that mental attendance as we talked about before is something that is front and center for me and continues to be something that's important. And there's many other skills that definitely have helped me. Goal setting is really important to me. And just the mechanics and details of writing down goals is something that I've done from a long time. And I'm actually in my office right now. And <laughs> see, I didn't even plan this. I didn't even, this is just, this right here, this book was given to me from my mother when I was in sixth grade. So this I'm reading right here for the audience. Hold the title up again. So all about goals, how to achieve them, Jack. Ensign Addington. I've never heard of that book. I'm going to definitely yes. look into that. 
this book right here is as antiquated as you can get <laughs> when it comes to any kind of literature, especially in the science of, of goal setting, because we've definitely come a long way. And however, I was first introduced to this in sixth grade and I started setting goals formally in sixth grade. In fact, I had a box and my mother was responsible for this. This is all her fault. <laughs> so I set goals and I wrote them down on little pieces of papers and put them in a box. And for whatever reason, for me, when I wrote down something and I put that, that paper in that box, it was going to get done. And that was the thought that I had back then. And it was almost, Andy, it was like magic. It was almost magic back then because I saw that it worked. I saw the link with cause and effect. Can you imagine at a very young age, I was hooked. I was hooked. So I set goals, all kinds of goals. I was playing sports like we, we talked about earlier at the time, playing sports academically. I set goals, set goals for a lot of variety of things. And then I got into high school, same thing. I got a little bit better on setting goals and continued with that box. And then when I got to in, in college in 1999, I have a book. In fact, I might have it here. I'm not sure. I'm going to see if I can find it. But I have, there it is right here. This right here is one of the most important things. And I am definitely not a material person. I, I'm more interested in ideas and yeah. concepts and, and really just doing what we do in education. But this right here, this notebook, I started with goal, goal setting, writing these down in this format in 1999. My first goal right here is in 19, in the fall of 1998, actually, 1998, is to be a starter on the MJC football team. That's goal number one. I have over 3,500 goals that are written down in here, and 60% or so have been completed at this time. And, and again, for me, it doesn't really matter if it's a thumbs up or achieved or thumbs down. It is what it's partly what drives me. So I'm a feverish goal setter. I write down goals a lot. And that's another mental oh, skill I, I that take, I use. I want to take a little time out there to dive more deeply into uh, goal setting. And, you know, have you read Atomic Habits by James Clear? I have. Yeah. So this idea of, you know, even micro goal setting. So it sounds like this is not, and this is a very important distinction for those listening when it comes to goal setting, because people hear about smart goals and this and that. And, and oftentimes people think that goals are these big, hairy, audacious goals that seem unattainable and that you have to fight and walk over broken glass and over fire. No matter what you do, you have to have a resilient spirit to get there. And if you don't, you know, not that you're a failure if you don't, but it's this idea that no goal setting is actually micro goal setting as well. And micro goal setting sets the basis for getting to those big, hairy, audacious goals. So you said you had 3,500 goals in there, and I love that goal setting has been so important, but talk a little more about, you know, what that actually means and what that looks like and the power of micro goal setting and what micro goal setting might look like as well as the big macro goal. I like that. And the way I come, well, the way I come to understand what you're saying with micro goals is process goals. Yes. And I spend most of my time in that world. Now I have also spent a lot of time 
And again, I want to go back to standing on the shoulders of giants that have helped me along this, this process of setting a vision and a stretch goal. So these are all, you and I are using, you know, the nomenclature and these words and concepts, but I certainly didn't understand this when I was 18 years old, but that's intuitively, these are things that I really worked hard on philosophy and creating a vision. I didn't call it those back then, but really these are stretch goals. So if we really, I really worked hard on creating an abstract vision of who I want to be, what I want to do, and specifically what it looks like. And then 95% of the time is in the space of the process and it's mindfulness. And there's, there's a lot of research lock and colleagues that, that it's all wrapped around this. It runs deep and wide when it comes to goal setting. And, and there are some individuals out there that that are poking at it right now and saying that eh, it might not lead to flow state and this and that, that could be true, but it really depends on how we're using this as a tool. As, as any tool, it has to be, doesn't have to be, but the suggestion is to use it certain ways that fits you, that allows you to facilitate your own growth and progression. And so for me, the micro, to use your word, the process goals is something that each day really just sets my intention. If I'm going to write down, I want to be, or I'm going to be mindful today in psych one, I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to set reminders and I'm going to hold myself accountable because here's, here's how I've come to understand this. And again, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out, but what I've learned for myself is when I get in rugged and hostile environments, I've already made the decision well before that, that I'm going to do something. I'm going to be me. I'm going to stay present. I've already made that decision. I didn't wait till I got punched in the mouth to decide I better get my shit together, you know? And so I think that what I, I use goals to get ahead of some of those so that I could be more present when that time comes, whether it's a classroom, whether it's being in a lake with another 2000 swimmers getting punched in the mouth in a swim in a lake swim, or it's an ocean swim or whatever it is, any kind of environment, we all have our own rugged environment. I think the goal setting for me, the micro goals, the process goals, they're what allow me to stay present. And, and also, I think a second piece is, is it really, it chin checks me, meaning that it keeps me accountable because our minds are awesome. They are really phenomenal. They're designed to keep us safe, though, and they're highly adaptive. It's natural, it's common, and it's normal. So for all you individuals out there that are trying to figure out ways to go do some great things, guess what? We are not designed to do that. And so we want to get ahead of that. We want to figure out what are the conditions of our mind when things get really, really tough. And to do that, for me, there's many ways. Goal setting is not the panacea for all, but it is something for me that I use that, that definitely helps me get ahead of it so I can write a goal that when I'm in hour 15 of a triathlon or an Ironman, I am going to be in the worst pain I've ever felt in my life. I've already told myself that I know that, but I made a, an agreement. I made an agreement with myself right here that under absolutely no circumstances, am I going to hit eject? I'm going to stay in it. And so for me personally, just to write it down and then it doesn't just stop right there. I put it in my head as I train. And so when I'm training and I get really tired or whatever the condition is that that's rugged, I remind myself of that. So it's almost that chin checking that 
It holds me accountable when things get tough. Now, that's the same thing in the classroom, too. Same thing when we're getting that, that feedback from the students. We need to pivot and adjust. We need to be aware of those things. And then when times get tough, we've already told ourselves we're in this thing. So that is kind of how I use it, if that makes sense. That's how I use those micro goals yeah, in those environments. Yeah, that's great because, you know, as we know, everything is rooted in the process. And the old factory model was very much rooted in the product. But now we understand that it's all about the process and, and the goals that we we set and the work that we do related to the process. And then reflection is a key piece to that. So I wanted to share with you, because when you talked about, you know, those, those micro goals, those process goals are really intentions. And the work that I've done with a sports psychologist around golf. Uh, so my son, I, you know, my son, Eli went to the sports psychologist and he's going to connect with you soon to have a conversation, but um, he did a, so I, I had done some extensive work with one of the European tours, most uh, renowned sports psychologist, Dr. Carl Morris, who has coached Graham McDowell and, you know, so many different Louis Oosthuizen, who's, awesome. yeah, who, who's done so much, you know, he's done so much work uh, on the European tour. But what he talks about is this idea that you have to create an intention, that you create the intention first but then it's intention and then it shifts to attention. Mm -hmm. Where are you going to place your attention that once you set the intention, your attention has to be placed on that intention and to, to really focus on that. So to use the golfing metaphor, what he says is that when you're um, competing and you're stepping up to the ball, and again, this is a metaphor for any sport, but you're essentially asking yourself instead of visualizing what you want to create in your head you're actually asking yourself what shot do i want to create here depending on the, the the lie of the ball and you know the shot you have to hit what shot do i want to create and then the second and so then automatically the answer is the visualization instead of forcing the visualization and then it's how do I want my body to feel to create that shot? So now suddenly you're drawn back to the physical being mm -hmm. and, and the physical sensations of how you have to hit the shot because it's not going to be the same as every shot. It's very different because no matter what shot you hit in golf, it's a first time because the yes. are different. Yes. So. Yeah. So then you have to visualize and, and imagine how you want your body to feel. And then after you've done those two things, you've asked yourself, what shot do I want to hit? How do I want my body to feel to create that shot? You step in and you hit the shot. And then the third part of that is acceptance. So no matter what happens, you, you accept it. So rather, if you snap hook it into the lake, or into the forest, instead of throwing your club into the trees, you just accept this is part of the process. And, and later, the idea is that you go through your whole round or the whole tournament doing this. And then later, you reflect on, you know, where you were at throughout that process. You know, so absolutely. So that's, that's kind of what you're describing. And um, in, in different, you know, using a different metaphor, but 
that has worked really well. And I wish I knew that when I played American football as a quarterback, you know, like really like setting an intention before a game and where I wanted to place my attention. Um, But, you know, just, just talk more and what I would like you to kind of discuss, because we talked about rugged environment and the hostile environment. There's also the calm environment and the Michael Gervais 10, 10, 10, right? So the 10, 10 deep breaths and, you know, visualizing a calm environment. So can you, do, do you, have you used that 10, 10, 10 in, in the work? Yeah, the, yeah, I like that. And the box breathing is that technique. And I actually learned that from a SEAL, a Navy SEAL, a while back when he talked about diaphragmatic breathing and really box breathing and Mark Devine at that time. And he talked about how there's, there's so many ways to look at this and what, what we're really trying to get from it. And for me personally, what I do now, this is interestingly, I don't usually do this with athletes because for me, I'm not necessarily trying to get calm. I, I work for more of a cognitive model, which is more of a cognitive reappraisal. And, and again, to go back to what you were saying, I, I love how you artfully described your, that routine, because that routine is wrapped around basically like three different theories. You have all kinds of things in there and that, that run really deep when it comes to science. And, and I, so that's really, really good. What I like to do when I take a breath, just like I did, I remember my first day in the prison and also my first time going into open water swim. And when I take a deep breath, I do, I use the box breathing kind of tempo, go really, really slow yeah. in. I mean, when you say box breathing, just many people might not know what box breathing is. Sure. So just describe exactly what it is and then continue on with what you want to talk about. Sure. Thank you. And so the box breathing is you're trying to box your air in the right spot in your diaphragm or using your diaphragm to really breathe down to the belly. We're trying to box that air and we do that with tempo. And so to use your, the numbers that you're talking about or Gervais talked about the 10, 10, 10, what I usually do is like a five, 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 or even another five. So I'll go five seconds in and they're slow seconds. Sometimes I even work the beat of my heartbeat. And so I'll go five of those, really expand my belly on the inhale. I'll hold my breath for five and I'll slowly exhale for five and then hold my breath for five and then repeat. And so there's some things going on right there. You know, we're developing tension, we're dissolving tension. So there's some things that are going on. What I like to do is, is that I've done it so many times. And again, I want to be really clear that it's not figured out because it's a process. We call it a practice because it needs to be practiced daily. And it's not anything like we've just hit the mother load. Like it's like we have this, right? So it's something I practice all the time, but I've done this so many times. As soon as I get in an environment that's, that's wrapped around, you know, some sort of intensity. Again, my, my perspective is more cognitive. I think we we use words and language and we create more hostility around a moment than we really need to. So what I usually do, I take a breath to elicit a conditioned response. Again, back to Pavlov's work with classical conditioning. So I've taken so many breaths and and in my, in my head, it's not even to generate calm. It's not to relax, but it's a cue for me. So my deep breath is a cue for me to take mental attendance 
So it's more of a mental state for me. Now, when I work with athletes, some athletes have more somatic anxiety. And so, you know, I work with them for so long. I, I figure out, Hey, where are you feeling that? Are you feeling that in your chest, your hands, your heart, your breathing? Some people need to breathe to develop calm. And some people, there's, there's some good research around ironic processing theory, meaning that if you tell them to take a deep breath to calm down, their heart rate's going to go up, even if they take a deep breath. So there's, there is no one size fits all. For me personally, what works for me is more of a cognitive model. And when I take a deep breath, if I'm in a moment of intensity, for, it's just, it serves as a cue for me, even though my heart rate might still be up, I, I tend, I can drop into that moment for the most part. And then I have ways where I can refocus. I try as best I can to do that, but it's more of a conditioning cue for me to, to be as present as I can and to think about what, what am I, what's the task relevant cue again, not to use these, 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 you know, esoteric type of vocabulary terms of what it really comes down to being simple. What is important now? What is it that I'm looking at? What am I supposed to be shifting my attention to or towards? What am I supposed to be receiving? The information that we're getting through sensation and perception is rapid. And so things are changing so much. And so I try to really take that deep breath, that box breath, to be able to, I guess, use the word center, even though I don't usually use that word to center, but it's really for me to be where my feet are at, to be present as best I can. And then your process kicks in. <laughs> That's the aim. That's the aim. Sometimes it does. Talk now talk about, because regardless of sport, what is your process at that point in your unique, you know, in what you do and how you apply it, your unique process. So what is your unique process at that point? So you talked about um, task relevant. Uh, what did you say? Task Task relevant cues. Yes, task relevant cues. So then you, the deep breath is the task uh, relevant cue to kick into your process, which is what? Is to do what I'm actually doing. So it's really, and let me kind of go back on that. It's to be who I am. And so if I'm in the water, everything, the process is about for me to do what I've already trained to do. So if it's, if I'm swimming in an open lake, then it's to slice through the water. And so as I go through it, for example, if I'm going to enter the water, I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to take that deep breath that we talked about. Now, when we're getting punched in the mouth or we're in deep body of water, there's no breathing. And this is where the, not traditional, but where the ancient wisdom and the Buddhist approach and Taoism might part ways with kind of the fast lane of the Western world, which is we don't have time to roll out a mat. And I remember talking to a Navy SEAL about this when they're kicking down the door and they're going to go into some kind of environment where there could be a individual with the AK 47 pointed at them. They, they don't have time, you know, to take a breath. So what happens is, is it's all the work that preceded that. It's all the deep work, the process that we've already talked about, the front loading, the goal setting, the, the imagery, the breath is just to get, is to take that mental attendance to make sure we're there. And then when we're getting punched in the mouth, do we have something to refocus on that brings us back to what we're doing? And in, in my circumstance, in my situation, I'm just using a point. It could be, 
you know, it could be in the classroom. It could be many things, but if I'm in an open water swim and I feel like I'm not being me. And what I mean by that is when I'm by myself in a very cozy pool, that is me being me. There's no distractions. Can I mimic that in an environment that's wrapped around chaos? <laughs> Can I be me? That's kind of my metronome. That's not, that's really the, the litmus test for me. And so when I'm not doing that, I have a cognitive cue that I go to. And, you know, for me, this has been, I've used it for years, but it just works for me. I just tell myself discipline mind. That's all. Now that has nothing to do with anybody. Maybe, maybe it'll work for you. Maybe it won't. I'm definitely not advocating you use that because that, that might not work for you, but I paired that with moments of getting punched, metaphorically speaking, or when times are tough, I paired that with refocusing so much that it's almost a cue on demand that allows me to come back. Now, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes the environment becomes too big. And if I become, if I think I'm becoming too small, I'm, I'm just going to keep at it. And that's where mindfulness comes in, right? So sometimes it's refocusing a thousand times in a minute. So sometimes it's, it's just, boom, keep coming back, keep coming back. And it's just work in the process, work in the process and then let's evaluate later. You know, let's just figure this out later. Easier said than done because sometimes, you know, wow, in rugged environments, we're evaluating quickly. But that's that second piece where it's that judgment. We're evaluating how it's going. And so I'm trying to, re- to reserve that judgment until the end. Now, how I do it is using the cognitive cue in that kind of environment. And so if I'm in a classroom environment, I might have another cue that I go to. But essentially, that's kind of what I what I go to. Yeah, and I had a conversation today about flow and this idea of, of being in flow. And I recently had on uh, the podcast Brody Levin, who is an adventure skier. You know, so he climbs up mountains and skis straight down. Like, not, <laughs> not on a 45, yeah. which is like oh my God. a diamond, right? Like, he's so he's flying. Down. and he um he's incredible i mean he's you know he's he's done some amazing adventures and he released a documentary on may 30th called lost where he went to georgia the country which borders russia and what he does is he looks uh for the the steepest face he face he can find and then he has to wait for the right weather moments to climb up and then ski down and we got in, into an interesting discussion about Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and flow and all of this stuff. And he's like, whoa, 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 stop, stop with the flow stuff. I'm not going there because in my line of work, I have no time to experience flow. And although I might be okay in a moment, it can change in an instant. And I have to make all of these micro calculations in my mind so it's not about shutting off the prefrontal cortex and, and just being in the moment. I have to make these micro calculations because an, an avalanche could happen in an instant. And I have to be very aware and make these calculations as I go down and try to find the best line of descent. And in my head, when he was talking about that, I was thinking, well, wait, wait, you I'm thinking in my head that, a lot of the training that he has done and a lot of extreme athletes is, is so built into their subconscious. So if they just let their subconscious kick into gear, the micro calculations are already taking place as they go down the mountain because they're, 
They've done it a million times. They, they know, they feel it. And that can be um, a being in flow that, you know, so that's where we kind of differed when I was talking to him about that. And I was like, no, I, I think you're in flow, dude. I think you're in flow. Yeah. And then you've done yeah, this conscious work to. to yeah, that's oh. part. I think if I could expand on that, I think a lot of the athletes I work with, they talk about, you know, I'm just in my head too much. And, and I, you know, I think there, there's many layers here. And I'm going to see if I can really pull this together. But how I've come to understand it is there's a difference between autopilot and flow state. And so how athletes in rugged environments describe it they're they they might not be really good at describing their their process what they're going through meaning that flow is in control so every environment changes there's i think cognitive science some really good cognitive science has taught us that we can't get out of our head and even when we drop into a flow state there's still controllability there. In fact, that's one of That's one of his major, um, not antecedents, but that's one of the major functions of flow is that there's a high level of controllability. And so many times, I, I think at least some of the athletes I've worked with, they feel that they're trying, that they're thinking too much. They need to try to get out of their head and it's just going to be automatic. It's just going to automatically happen. And that is, at least from how I've understand it, especially in environments that are really tough, is that there is controllability and it's not automatic. We can we could talk about different levels of consciousness, but there is, and even flow state, even when individuals are in flow state, it's such a low percentage. I think for a good reason, because we're toggling, toggling between subflow, full flow. And what happens is, is that they're able to, be aware when they're in a flow state there's there is high level alertness in flow state so individuals are aware and they can see the environment changing they might not be able to describe it that way they might describe it as i just did what i do but i really think that it's not automatic i think that they've trained so well that they can pivot and adjust to all those natural unfolding moments and so automatic is mindlessness i think and and in fact there's no control there there's no control there but they have certain things that they do that they go to that allows them to be back in that moment that allows them to work that process and and so that's what we talk about with our athletes as soon as we talk as soon as we're trying to figure out ways to get all the mind out of it i think that is sometimes when we run into problems now it doesn't mean we're flooding our mind with things i think we need to have a system we need to have a, a process and a system of organizing the way that we work. And that's where the beauty, the beautifulness of the individual comes in, that everybody organizes things differently. Just like my office right here or you or someone you know, they organize their, their environment, their room, their office. They know where their things are at. They know exactly where they're at. Same thing in our head. We're not trying to get rid of everything, but we're just kind of moving some things around, organizing them, using them at the right time. And so I think that that individual that's, that's going straight down. I mean, the way you say it, man, I could see him going straight yeah. down. Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah. That he's done it so much, but there's, I would venture to say through, through some probing that there is some controllability there to an extent, you know, especially when it comes to the training, 
yeah. I think. And so that's something that fascinates me. At least that's worked for me, for sure. If we were to peel it back to, if you could run a school and you could run a physical education, health and sport program, in knowing what you know now, and team sport played a big influence on what you do, but at the same, you know, if we flip the coin, individual pursuits such as triathlon also have, have played a very important part of your life. So if you could kind of lead a physical education, health and sport program, what would you have the, the, the teachers uh, focus on and deliver to their students to ensure that every student had a chance to succeed and flourish in their own ways. Another good one, Andy. Andy, that was good. I like that. You know, you said intention to attention earlier. And I think for the most part, we like that. We understand that, you know, that's intuitive for anybody that hears that. Okay. Oh, I like that. Right. To set, to front load something, to get ready to pay attention. For the most part, many people, create so much noise around the moment and we, we've been using the word rugged and hostile but they create intensity around a moment where they can't even have an intention because it's like trying to learn how to swim when we're drowning and so what we want to do what i would do is and again we all know we're we're totally biased with this with our backgrounds but without a doubt it would be early in the morning and it would be mindful movement it would be mindful movement and the reason I say bias is because I use it myself when I go out for long runs is I really try to get connected to this is the mind body. Again, another cliche, but it's so real and so nuanced is to feel, feel the body is to feel it contact in the ground. So I, it would look like this. It would be mindful movement and we would try to trigger in some formal mindfulness. So I think it's okay to build up some contextual interference and roll the mat out, roll the mat out and get on it. And can you get still, can, let me go back, not get still. I didn't mean that, but can you go inside and focus on the breathing and the refocus? Can we do that? Because that's rugged. We haven't really talked about that either because boredom could be on the other end of that continuum as well. Not jumping off a a mountain going straight down. That is one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is rolling out a mat, sitting on a pillow or just getting sitting in your house during a major pandemic and being bored for a little bit where people are trying to control the environment. So they're trying to increase stimulation that could be rugged too, for some people. And of course, in some people that might have some preexisting health conditions or mental health or physical health as well. So what it would look like, I would think would be to, have some sort of formal mindfulness practice. And then from there is to embed some mindful movement that's wrapped around cardiovascular or cardiorespiratory type of training. Because we know the research is just runs as wide as it gets when it comes to enhancing cognition, increasing mental performance when it comes to academics. And so that would precede period one period two. And then I would also say that, so we would have some sort of formal mindfulness practice, how that looks for everybody's a little bit different, but it would be isolated. Meaning we're going to do this at eight o'clock for two minutes, for three minutes, it would be isolated. That's a formal mindfulness. And then we would have a movement based mindfulness to use some of your work that you've done is, 
Is it, is it autonomous? Are they able to pick what they want? I think that's important because of the, you know, intrinsic motivation and, and how it's goal directed mindful movement wrapped around cardiovascular type of training. And there's many ways we can do that. You, you play basketball, you can, you know, run, get on a bike, Donnie Robinson, right? So get on a BMX bike. <laughs> there's so many things that the individual can do. And then the big one is, is more informal mindfulness throughout the day. So we don't just want to leave it on, on the, the BMX track. We want to just leave what we did in the PE classroom. We want to take that with us, with us throughout the day and embed what we call informal mindfulness training. So check in, take mental attendance throughout the day. And these are things we would teach our students. Set a timer, disrupt yourself a little bit. We have to have disruption. To use your words right here, how do we go from intention to attention? I think we have to make have some kind of disruption. So we need to have some kind of reminder. Some people are mentally disciplined enough where they can remind themselves internally. For the most part, we're, we're, we're in rugged times already with the pandemic, but we have cell phones, we have a lot of noise. So having some sort of external reminder, such as a chime or a timer that goes off every 30 minutes or every hour that just allows you to check in. Where are you at right now? Can you feel yourself sitting in your chair? You know, how are your feet rooting against the, the mat or the ground? Where are your eyes supposed to be in the classroom? Back to task-relevant cues. To use sports and transfer that, to generalize that to the classroom, it would look like this. You know, what's important now with task-relevant cues for a student is eyes on the eyes of the teacher, the professor, or the instructor. Eyes go to your notes or eyes go to the board, and they're shifting between those two. So we have to give them some kind of focal point because that's the mindfulness training. That's more the contemplative approach. And then what I just said there, that might not be what you do. You might want their eyes on the front elbow. You might want the eyes as you're teaching a skill on, on the hips, whatever it is. I think it's important to figure out for a math teacher, the eyes are probably going to be on the board or the eyes of the instructor back to the notes and toggling back and forth. I think that's how informal mindfulness plays out. But again, having some sort of formal mindfulness, mindfulness movement, getting the heart rate up, and then have an informal practice would be, it makes me happy right now <laughs> to think about that. That would be really cool if we had that. And it's that zone of proximal development, right? And and this very the very nature of personalized learning. And that's what you know, when you talk about this, having this mindfulness practice, uh, we really worked hard the last couple of years here to develop that. And, and then that goes back to just centering yourself and, and teaching the students the skill of centering themselves. And when you look at a curriculum and you look at the amount of time that teachers have with students, in particular, single subject teachers, so music teachers, art teachers, physical education teachers, they might only have 40 minutes a week, right? So do, do they really have time to teach all of the physical skills necessary to succeed in sport and movement? No, they don't. Time will be wasted. So it's more about uh, teaching them the skills to get them centered and focused but then to personalize learning in ways that allow them to flourish and then find their entry points. And, and that's what we're talking about. And, you know, and going back to the start of this conversation about 
tweaking and modifying and adjusting what we do to base who we are as a person, the strengths that we have, the context that we're working in. And uh, I wish all schools would, would run this way, you know, but they don't. And that, yeah, and that's a common thing that we get. In fact, I'm giving a talk to our faculty about how do we, well, first would be mindfulness around times that we're in right now that are tough, but also how can we use it in the classroom? And a common statement is we, do, we don't have time. And, you know, to me, it's almost as if we don't have time not to do it because if we look at time wasted already and what I mean, here's, here's the litmus test that I run through kind of the filter I run through is when I walk into a classroom and uh, really speaking of a lecture class, cause that's where I spend most of my time. But even, even a physical education course is how's the attention of the students? Are they engaged? I mean, out of the gate, that's the number one thing that I look at myself and how I'm trying to pivot and adjust to get them back in is how is the attention? How are they, what's their level of focus? And so I think that we do miss a lot. The students might, they don't know what they're supposed to be focused on. Just like back to our coaching days is a receiver or a defensive back comes off the field and we tell them the obvious, look, dude, you got beat deep. <laughs> you know, he knows that. So then what do we say after that? You got to focus. He knows that too. Okay. So then what do we, okay, well, you got to focus on the inside hip and not go with that first move. Drive your feet, double time the feet, stay inside. And so we got to teach them exactly what to do. Same thing in the classroom. Where are your eyes? Where should they be? So it's really attention training. And it really takes a matter of five seconds, 10 different reps throughout the classroom. And that's what we do in my site classes is we do, we do audio or audible cues. I say hands, they throw their hands up. You have 50 to 60 students, boom, they clap. And it just sets their mind back to what we're doing. Now that's one way. There's probably many, there's many ways to do it. But the question I think to ask ourselves as educators is this, is if we're really worried about time constraints, how much are we losing already? You know, how much time are we, how much inattention to use your word, we're trying to have that intention to get attention or to drop into an attentive frame of mind. How much are we really hitting that mark? How much are we losing? So then what's risk versus reward? What are, how much time are we really using to take a breath? How long does it take? Five seconds in, five seconds out. So that's just something to think about, I think, for all of us, yeah. myself included, because there's so much content to put in for our students. Yeah, for sure. So, Kevin, it's been great. And as we segue into the last part of the show, there's just a couple of questions that I want to ask you. But um, given the current pandemic and, you know, how our world has been turned upside down, uh, a question that I like to ask my guests is what has kept you inspired during this time to just keep you rooted in what it is you love to do and, and your work and your passions and all of that? So, how have you uh, stayed inspired during this time? Well, in that respect, I have not missed one beat because my students and the athletes I work with is 100% keeps me in the game and keeps me inspired a lot for sure right now, especially in this, this time that we're in, that's extremely unique to all of us. But without a doubt, I am so fortunate to do what I do and have the opportunity to make a or an adjustment 
that we can deliver what we do in different formats. Some individuals might not have that choice. So they might really enjoy what they do and they enjoy the people they're around and they're inspired by the people that they're around, but they might not have the choice to be able to go to an online remote platform and still preserve that. And so luckily the college that I'm at has, has adjusted nicely and it's not the best approach to delivery with some of the stuff that we do, but it certainly keeps us connected and to use your word, the inspiration is definitely there when we're able to see our athletes and we're, and I'm able to see my students and work with them and to continue to develop in such a really tough space that we're in right now, that definitely keeps me connected to the main purpose of what I'm all about in education. Okay, great, great. And for those listening who want to find you on social media, do you have uh, some social media links that you want to share? Yes, the we have a Facebook page. It's Professor Mark's Optimal Performance through Mental and Physical Systems. And then on Twitter, the handle is at Coach Marks SCC. So Coach Marks M-A-R-K-S and then S-C-C. Okay, great. So Kevin, it's been great to finally connect with you and have this conversation. And I knew we were going to kind of get into some as uh, Gervais says, get into the weeds a bit about what we're passionate about, which is really like the idea that the frameworks that allow us to succeed and be our personal and professional best. So I love the conversation. Yeah. Back at you. As always, it is fun when I do these things to connect with not just like minds, but also individuals that are really passionate. And secondly, really authentic. I sense that you're really into what you do and you really believe it. And there's nothing better than that, especially the time again, to go back where we're in right now. You know, we need that. We need people like you to do what you do that keeps us all grounded and moving forward at the same time. I think it's really important. So love, love having, uh, love having this discussion and appreciate your time and a lot of respect for what you do. Thank you very much. And you as well. I just stay on the line. I just want to uh, sure. show. So everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Kevin Marks. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes.